Morning. Did you see that it's snowing outside? You don't see that? Now, if you, if you doubt me, it's okay, because we're talking about doubt this morning. This is, this is for you. Yeah, we are actually going to talk about doubt in church. You know, this is a church where we take a lot of pride in just being authentic and being real. I'm not trying to put up a fancy front for anyone. And so we're going to talk about doubt this morning. Is it okay to have doubt sometime about your faith, about God? Is it okay to doubt what God's doing or maybe not doing in your life? I want to tell you that, yeah, doubt is actually a normal part of having faith. And we're going to kind of just, if that feels like, I don't know, we're going to kind of talk through that this morning. And we're going to do that as we continue in the book of Luke uh, in the Bible. And we're going to talk about the doubts of actually one of the greatest people to ever live. Uh, If you want to follow along in our passage uh, for this morning, we are on uh, page 838 in the uh, Bibles under the chairs. Uh, Or you can use the Renovation Church app. Just have Bible and weekly verses, and it's all there as well. This morning, we're going to look at the doubts of John the Baptist. Now, we last talked about John back in May, and I realized that so many of you are new, uh, even from May. Maybe even you're new this week. This is your first week to Renovation Church. Welcome. Uh, We're happy you're here. But John the Baptist was this guy who did a ministry out in the desert wearing clothes of camel's hair. He ate bugs for breakfast and all that. And he, he called the people to repent, to turn from their sins and get baptized and start following God. He's this intense prophet, and his main purpose was to pave the way to turn back the spiritual hearts of the people towards God, paving the way for the Messiah to come, for, for Jesus. So this is a great man of faith. And so I, I think you might, in some ways, if you're not familiar with this passage, you might find it a bit surprising. But in some ways, I, I also pray that you find it in encouraging and comforting at the same time. So we are in Luke 7. Uh, this week we are now on verse 18. Here's what it says. John's disciples told him about all these things. Uh, If you weren't here last week, that was uh, Jesus healing people and raising a young man from the dead, all of those things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord, to Jesus, to ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask Are you the one who is to come, meaning are you the Messiah, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Okay, so what's happening here? The great John the Baptist sends his own disciples to ask Jesus, Hey, are you the Messiah or should I be looking for someone else? Right, this is kind of a loaded question, but before we kind of untangle it a bit, we, we want to get into some, I think it's important to get some biblical context on John the Baptist's life. Think about this. What has John the Baptist seen with his own eyes? In the spring, we covered the story where John got to baptize Jesus, the Son of God, personally. And he saw 
John saw with his own eyes the Holy Spirit descend like a dove. He heard the audible voice of God say, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. John got to watch as tax collectors and hardened sinners walked into the Jordan River to get baptized and turn their lives over to God. John himself once prophesied about Jesus that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, I don't know if you know this or not, but John and Jesus are technically like second cousins. When they were both in utero, Mary, Jesus' mom, goes to visit her cousin, Elizabeth, John's mom, and we're told that the baby John the Baptist leapt in the womb just because the Son of God, Jesus, was in the room. So before we go any further in this message, if there is anyone in this room right now that's having any doubts about God, which you probably are, we're just not very good at admitting it, right? If there is anyone in here who is struggling with doubt, I just want to say to you this morning, stop being so hard on yourself. Now, I can't say for certain, but I doubt that you have seen the things that John the Baptist saw. And even he, at certain times in his life, had to deal with doubt. And see, because I think that we would welcome John the Baptist into this church, right? I think we can say, yeah, doubters welcome. That doubters are welcome here. In fact, you read on, you'll get to read some of this in your house groups this week. You read on in the passage, and after Jesus hears about John's doubt, then he just starts talking about how great John the Baptist is. And so if Jesus was okay with John's doubts, He can live with yours, okay? But let's start digging into John's question. Like, why is this guy, of all people, why is he doubting that Jesus is the Messiah? I think there are really two reasons here, and honestly, I think these are really similar to the two reasons that often you and I doubt God as well. And so I'm going to walk through them this morning. The first reason we doubt is this. We doubt because we find out that God isn't who we expect him to be. Now, John, like most Jews, expected the Messiah to come in power, except not the type of power that Jesus was currently showing. John mostly expected that Jesus would probably come and overthrow the Roman occupation, that he would come and execute God's judgment on evildoers and and bring God's wrath and all of those things. And Jesus is going to do that eventually, But that's not how he's come on earth, right? He's come in love, in mercy, in service. He's doing these miracles. In fact, he even shows John's disciples these miracles right here, right? He's he's giving sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. And by the way, all the things that Jesus, this is really interesting, all the things that Jesus cites and shows as evidence to John's disciples are specific things that Uh, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would one day do. So in a sense, Jesus is saying, John, all right, look at the Bible. I'm I'm doing the things that the Messiah was supposed to do. It's just realize that it might look different than you expect it to. Okay, so what's at the first root of John's doubt? It's that Jesus isn't exactly who he thought he was going to be. Now, I think this is the kind of doubt that sometimes comes upon us as we continue on in our years of faith. 
right? You learn more and more. You read more of the Bible. You learn more and more about who Jesus is. And we find out that he isn't exactly who we thought he was when we first met him. Like in a lot of ways, that's similar to any relationship, right? You meet someone. You fall in love. Everything's going great. And then you find out that they're secretly a Packers fan, right? You're like, oh, I thought I knew you, right? <laughs> now, of course, the difference is with Jesus, everything that we find out about him or discover about him is right, is good. But it's just that sometimes we honestly, if we're just honest, we have a hard time accepting that it's right. Because it doesn't fit our cultural paradigm of what is right. Uh, let me give you an example of this. Um, sometimes I hear Americans say, I'm not sure that I can fully follow Jesus, which is doubt, right? Because Jesus claims that he's the only way to heaven. I say, I like Jesus, but that sort of claim of exclusivity, it, I don't think that's right. And that's, that's how it's often phrased. But I think we have to realize that when we say things like that, that's just not right, that we're really speaking for ourselves, although many people would say we're speaking for, I would say in some ways you're speaking for your culture, maybe a westernized culture. But realize that plenty of cultures around the world have no problem whatsoever with the claim of exclusivity. In fact, I I would say the data shows that the majority of the people in the world don't have a problem with that. Uh, Look at this quote from uh, Timothy Keller on the subject. He says, think about this. The things that offend you, people in other cultures love. And the things you love, offend them. Can you imagine how incredibly narrow it is to say, the problems I have with Jesus are Jesus' real problems. The things that offend me are the things that are offensive about him. People in traditional cultures say, how could he walk away from an adulterer? referencing the story in the Gospels where Jesus you know, catches someone in adultery and is willing to forgive them. Right? Not, not condone it, but forgive it. It says, isn't adultery sinful, they would say? Isn't it wrong? Doesn't it hurt all kinds of people? Doesn't it lead to incredible destruction? And what? Is he saying it doesn't matter? They're offended. But they're not offended by this idea that there's absolute truth. And if you don't have it, you're lost. That's no problem for them. The things that offend them, you love. The things they love offend you. He says, don't you get it? If you try to get rid of or void the offensive aspects of Jesus, you have a Jesus only for you. So we look to the words of Jesus in verse 23 from our passage. What does he say? He says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. In fact, the old translations used to say, and honestly, I bet they're going to switch this back in the next 10 years because this word is so prevalent in our society today. The old translations used to say, blessed is anyone who is not offended on account of me. That's a good word for today, right? Everybody gets offended about it. You just look at them and they get offended, right? So what's the saying? It's saying we're blessed when we're willing to follow Jesus no matter what, and we don't feel offended by who he truly is. Okay, that's nice, but what do you do when the doubts come? Like, what do you do when you kind of do feel offended by who you read God to be? 
And I know I'm not supposed to say that, right? But okay, what if? Like, what if you're reading in Scripture and you feel kind of offended? Before I even answer that question, I just want to back up for a minute because I think before we can even answer that, we need a better understanding of what doubt is. Doubt, in a lot of ways, is similar to temptation. Now, temptation is interesting because temptation in and of itself is not a sin. You you, you go back to the book of Genesis in the Bible. Uh, Joseph, when he's tempted by Potiphar's wife, the very fact that she tempted him, the temptation in itself is not a sin. Now, if he would have acted on it, sure, that's, that's, that's a sin. But temptation merely presents you with a choice. And doubt is similar. Right? So don't beat yourself up just because doubt is present in your life. Like temptation, doubt is merely an opportunity to move further away from God or an opportunity for you to move closer to God. So now let's play this out with an example. Okay, let's say you're reading the Bible, and you get to this uh, a difficult passage, and there are plenty of them, and you see God doing something that you're not sure that you even agree with. Right? Perhaps, um, you know, one of the things that people struggle with a lot in our culture is uh, maybe you read in the Old Testament and God is just exacting judgment on an entire nation or something, right? One of the ites or something, those Samsonites or something. I'm just kidding. Uh, right? And you read this and you think, God... Is that really you? You ever do this? You think, hmm, I don't know if I believe that. Would a good God actually do that? And you experience doubt. It's not always a bad thing that you experience doubt. I would tell you it's a human thing. But remember, doubt, when that, when that comes in a will, it's just an opportunity for you to move closer to God or further away. And, and plenty of people use it to move further away. Right? I think this is one of the reasons that so many churches are afraid to talk about it. Plenty of people read those passages and they say, honestly, kind of with an aura of cultural superiority, they say, nah, that can't be God. But what are you saying when you say that? What you're saying is, I know, I, I know what a good God would really be like. Yeah, but do you? No, seriously, do you? And how? How how do you know that? Do you, one person, from one culture, from one period in history, actually know what a good God is like? How do you know that? Or is there some sacred text that you... How do you know? I, I just feel like we ought to be nervous about making such conjectures. So doubt, when, you, when it comes and you experience it, it ought to be a springboard towards you further investigating the truth, not backing away from it. Okay, think about how a, a child experiences, maybe not spiritual doubt, but intellectual doubt. Uh, my son Lincoln is a two. Uh, he's uh, going to turn three in a couple weeks. And he loves to talk, like all the time. Like, uh, sometimes at dinner, he's just going, da, 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 and I just want to stop and say, just stop. Like, I have things to say that I want to share at the dinner table, right? The other day, I was trying to develop an equation for just how many questions he asked a day. And, you know, you're just working off sample data, right? I probably would fail props and stats for this. But 
I'm estimating that he asked somewhere around 500 questions a day. Now, I've always had this uh, parenting philosophy that I made this commitment to myself that I, I will answer every single one of the questions that my kids ask me because I want them to develop as, as learners, as a curious people. But most of his questions start with one word. You know what it is? Culver's. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it, what is it? It's why. Right? That's how a toddler talks. He says, why are he doing that? Why is, why is that here? Why are you wearing that? Right? Just, I don't know. Right? Just, right? Every once in a while, after like 30 in a row, because sometimes they just, it's just rapid fire, I just, can't, I just look at them and say, why are you asking so many questions? Right? <laughs> but just think about this. Okay, what's one of the things that's underneath every why question? Doubt. Okay, when you say why that over there, right? You're trying to ascertain if what's happening should actually be happening. That's doubt. See, doubt, in a sense, is a normal part of learning. And one of the ways that I've always personally defined learning is learning is just a constant readjustment of what you believe to be true. Oh, well, is that? No, actually, it's this. That's what learning is. And see, just as doubt is a normal part of learning, in a sense, it's a normal part of growing in your faith. If you want to grow in your faith, you're going to deal with some doubt along the way. One of the things that I think is really important to understand is faith and doubt will always coexist. Okay, let's just mathematically work it out. This is how it makes sense to me as a person who loves math. Even if you, 98% of you, in faith, believe something to be true. And I would say that's really high, right? You have 98% faith in it. What does that mean? It means you have 2% doubt. You have 70% believe something in faith to be true. It means you have 30% doubt. If you 100% believe something to be true, you don't have faith. That's not faith, right? That's, that's certainty. That's knowledge. But if you have a level of faith, it will always, always coexist with some level of doubt. And so, hear this. It's not really about whether or not you have doubt in your life. It's about how you handle your doubt. Okay, so how do you handle it? I'm going to give you just two ways to walk through this, too. One of the first and really important ways that you handle doubt when it comes into your life is you talk to God about it. And you study his word. When you doubt, and we just kind of go through seasons of this, when you doubt, that is one of the most important times for you just to be in God's word. Open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Start studying the person of Christ. Ask him your tough questions. You deal with doubt by pressing in, not walking away. Think of it in a relationship. If you're in a relationship and you start doubting that the person you're in a relationship with actually loves you, how do you solve that? You solve it by pressing in, by going to talk to them about it, not by pulling away. That doesn't really solve anything for you. This is how God tells us to solve doubt, in a sense, or one of the ways that it's solved. Look at Romans 10, 17. 
Paul says, consequently, faith, right, which is what we want, not doubt, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. And so when we doubt, which we will, we increase the percentage of our faith so the percentage of our doubt goes down. We do that by talking to him, by exposing ourselves to more of his word. You go to something to find out the truth. You don't back away from it. Now I want to walk into the second reason for doubt, and really I'll give you a second answer for how to deal with that. There is a second reason in Scripture here why John the Baptist is experiencing doubt. It's not just because the Messiah isn't looking exactly how he thought he would at this time. Now, the clues for this in Scripture are actually back in Luke chapter 3, and then also in Matthew chapter 11, when Matthew tells us the same story. We're told in those two places in Scripture that John, while he sends his disciples out, didn't come himself because he's actually locked away in prison during this time. Now, John was clearly aware of what had been happening in updates for Jesus' ministry. He was aware that Jesus had been giving sight to the blind, that he had been restoring hearing for the deaf, and he was aware that Jesus was always talking about setting the prisoners free. And so John must have been thinking, but why haven't you set this prisoner free? He had to have been thinking, okay, you're doing all this stuff, you can bring people back to life. And yet, I'm your, I'm your prophet. Like, I'm the guy who paved the way for you. So how is it that the guy who grew up outdoors is now stuck in this dark and cold prison? Why haven't you rescued me? See, most doubts that we have about God... Not every, but honestly pretty close. Most doubts that we have about God can actually be traced to some sort of personal pain or experience or feeling. John isn't doubting just for theological reasons. He's suffering personally. And that's causing him to doubt. And this is really the second, I think, most common reason that we doubt. We doubt because God doesn't do for us in our own personal lives He doesn't do what we expect him to do. Or you could write down what we want him to do. Right? John's most likely hoping, praying for Jesus to get him out of prison. And he doesn't. And are we not like John? Right? Do we not say to him? We do. I've done this. Do we not say, if you're this great God, then why are you letting me suffer? Wow, I've been trying to be good and follow you. You used to bless me. What now? Why would you let this happen to my family? Maybe you're not good. And the doubt creeps in, right? Maybe you're not real. Why would you let me get sick like this? Maybe I just made this all up and the doubt comes in. But here's the thing. We don't tend to ask those sort of questions of him when things are going well. Suffering just has this way of bringing out our doubts. But don't let that scare you, okay? If the doubts scare you, what it'll do is it'll cause you to run. 
But doubts, remember, doubts are supposed to be a springboard for you to investigate the truth, an opportunity to grow closer, not further away. One of the most interesting things that you can pull out of this text is that Jesus isn't mad about John doubting. He's not. He doesn't say, how dare he say that about me after what him and I went through. He doesn't say that. He just gives an answer, kindly gives an answer to John's doubt, and then goes on to talk about how great John is. Right? Don't be so hard on yourself. You read through the Old Testament. In difficult times, in stressful times, Moses doubted. Gideon doubted. Elijah doubted. Job doubted. Even the disciples who walked every day face to face with Jesus for three years, what do they do? They doubted. Right? Doubters are welcome here because doubt always will coexist with faith. It's just what you do with it that matters, not that you have it. And so if life has been hard for you lately, and for some of you, that's just the spot you're in right now, and maybe it's even causing you to doubt God a little bit, don't let that push you farther away from him, but use that as an opportunity to grow closer to him. Look at Psalm 44 from the Old Testament. The writer, what does he do? He takes his doubt right to God, right to his face. He says, awake, Lord. Why do you sleep? (laughs) Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? I will tell you, God is not bothered when you talk to him like this. You know one of the reasons he's not bothered? Because he already knows you're thinking that, right? It's not like, oh, that's what you think? He already knows what you're thinking. He'd rather have you talk it out to let him come back in. But I, I do want to say this. We, we also need to remember this. We're not so good at this nowadays. How real God actually is, is not dependent on how well your life is currently going. It is dangerous. It's a bit egocentric for us to want to correlate those two things. And yet we do, we do that all the time. Some of the hard things that are happening in your life will eventually make sense to you. Some of them won't make sense to you this side of heaven. But is God still worthy of your worship even if you don't see his grand design? And so there's really a second way that you can deal, I think particularly with this kind of doubt. And it's actually right in the text. It's right in how Jesus answers John's doubt. What does he do? How does he answer it? He gives him a list of what he's done. And this is the second way that we deal with doubt. We remember, we remember, remember, remember what God has done. Now, I encourage you to apply this to your own life. One of the things that I've learned personally in life is that suffering has this way of erasing our memory of God's goodness to us in the past. I think that's because suffering tends to draw out our emotions. Emotions tend to blur our ability to think rationally or about the facts or even about the past. And when life is going all wrong, it's hard to remember what it felt like when it was actually going right. And so one of the things that you can do, this is really practical, I would encourage every single person in this church to do this this week if you can. At some point in your life, you need to do this. 
I want you, because this is how Jesus answered John's doubt, I want you to get out a pen or get out your phone or Microsoft Word, whatever's natural to you. And I want you to begin generating a list of what God has done. I want to talk to you through that list in just a second. At this point, I'm actually going to call our our worship band back on stage. I I want you to begin that list and start thinking through, what has God done in my life? And just start writing, okay, he saw all my sin, and he loved me anyway. He died on the cross for me, and he loved me. He saved me. And then just start going back through your life as a Christian. Do you remember that time when he answered that prayer? Do you remember when he changed that person's life? Do you remember when he did that one miraculous thing in my life? And just let the evidence begin to pile up. This is an exercise that almost always tends to give us more faith and less doubt. And it's something that you can hold on to in your life and add to it as life goes on. Something that you can always keep that when the doubts start to rise again and the faith starts to lessen, that you can pull that out and say, yes, Okay, I know I've been forgetting all that. My emotions are getting... That is who he is in my life. And I want to believe that again. I just want to close out this this message and kind of transition into worship. And I want to read to you Psalm 77 this morning. Psalm 77 is an entire psalm about doubt and faith. And it is the exact thing that we just talked about. It's going to show you... You bring your heart, you bring even your doubts to God, but we diminish our doubts by remembering what God has already done. Let's hear the word of the Lord. This is Psalm 77. The writer says, I cry out to God. Yes, I shout. Oh, that God would listen to me. When I was in deep trouble, I searched for the Lord. All night long I prayed with hands lifted toward heaven, but my soul was not comforted. I think of God and I moan, overwhelmed with longing for his help. You don't let me sleep. I'm too distressed even to pray. I think of the good old days long since ended when my nights were filled with joyful songs. I search my soul and ponder the difference now. Has the Lord rejected me forever? Will he never again be kind to me? Is his unfailing love gone forever? Have his promises permanently failed? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he slammed the door on his compassion? And I said, this is my fate. The Most High has turned his hand against me. But then I recall all you have done, O Lord. And I remember your wonderful deeds of long ago. They are constantly in my thoughts. I cannot stop thinking about your mighty works. Oh God, your ways are holy. Is there any God as mighty as you? You are the God of great wonders. You demonstrate your awesome power among the nations. By your strong arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. When the Red Sea saw you, O God, its waters looked and trembled. The sea quaked to its very depths. The clouds poured down the rain. The thunder rumbled in the sky. Your arrows of lightning flashed. Your thunder roared from the whirlwind. The lightning 
lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your road led through the sea. Your pathways through the mighty waters. A pathway no one knew was there. You led your people along that road like a flock of sheep with Moses and Aaron as their shepherds. So take that. When you take that doubt and you bring it to God and you remember. As we worship now, I want you to remember. Remember, remember, remember who he is and that he is good. And tell him, let's worship.